0: Welcome back to Roycast, the Original Succession Podcast. My name is Brendan. Joining me, as always, is my co-host Gabby. How you doing, Gabby?
1: I'm doing well. Happy holidays, everybody. I hope you had a, a good season. Uh, we're recording this on the second to last day of the year, so you won't be hearing this until twenty twenty three. But uh hope you have a good had a good New Year's, regardless.
0: Another year has come and gone without a Succession holiday special. I don't know why they haven't oh. done one yet. It seems it seems perfect for it. I have some ideas. I have a pitch. Jesse, call us. Um, we are looking forward, of course, to a new season of Succession in 2023. It will probably be 2023 when you hear this. So we will officially be in kind of ramp-up mode. Um, we had a, a teaser for Season 4. And we're thinking, um, when is this season going to come out? Gabby, do we have a guess? We have some some information on how long shooting is going to go for.
1: Yeah, I think um, most recent news was that filming is going to go until at least the end of January. So I think that makes our original theory of it like an April May uh, premiere most likely. Um, I'm thinking like late April, last two weeks of April, first two weeks of May is kind of like where my head's at
0: yeah i'm looking at this now but um the last of us series oh this runs in january so this probably yeah what's going prob- on
1: right now on sunday nights on hbo
0: well so, so the last of us i think is due to start soon um but that probably will wrap up sometime in march i think um
1: so they'll maybe to- squeeze something else in there and that sunday night spot well, we're back to ten episodes, episodes for Succession, which is which is cool.
0: Yeah, ten probably. episodes. We're not being jobbed out of <laughs> another episode like we were <laughs> in season three. Um, so they're going for nine episodes for The Last of Us. And do we have tentative dates? Remind for so me we... what
1: The Last of Us is again.
0: This is a s- sort of like survival apocalyptic video game that has been at ad- it's been adapted into a show. It's um, uh, Pedro Pascal and Bella Ramsey, both from Game of Thrones um craig mazin i believe from chernobyl is involved so yeah this should wrap up sometimes sometime mid-march um if succession is shooting through the end of january i guess it's theoretically possible they could be ready in time for a late march start um but i'm not sure about that yeah they may try to squeeze something else in there in which case we'd be looking at yeah late april may um so we're not 100% sure. This is not very scientific speculation here. But the point is, it's, uh, it's, coming. it's uh, coming. It's coming, yes. and the And the other thing that's really on our mind is we don't know if this is the last season yet. I mean, the fact that we're starting to get kind of like marketing materials for this season that aren't advertising, you know, like the final season, the epic showdown, you know, Logan, <laughs> Kendall. Um, we're, we're not getting that. Um, you know, no. we're the, the context for this is that Jesse, many of the writers and actors have often said that, you know, the vision for this show is it tops out at five seasons. Nobody thinks it should go for longer than five. Possibly mm-hmm. four, but, but maybe five. Uh, so... so there's a possibility that season four could be the last season but they're not really pushing it that way Uh, my sense is at this point they're just you know they haven't announced that season five is going to be the last season yet because they're waiting for a pickup Um, HBO traditionally kind of picks up its shows after the premiere episode they do so really quickly but they wait until the season has actually started they have like great rating numbers from the premiere and they say okay great we're renewed for another season so um, my guess is that we are going to go to five seasons and that we'll find out uh, when season four actually uh, premieres you know we we, (laughs) we don't what the new dynamic around succession is like at hbo which is obviously uh we're gonna try to not talk too much like <laughs> trades news on this podcast but it's been another a little tumult, interesting a little tumult. Year <laughs> for uh whatever the company is called now formerly warner media now warner brothers discovery, discovery. um you know uh chainsaw zazz based zazz has been uh, has been up to uh <laughs> been up to no good but i don't think uh succession is really in danger of getting the axe as far as like hbo's kind of original programming go it can be kind of hard to differentiate that from the hbo max originals there's a lot right. of kind of brand bleed going on there but i believe casey bloys is still in charge of hbo's original programming and succession i think is safe so there's i don't think there's any fear that they're going to like abruptly rip it from the service like they did Westworld. right it whatever. would only it's-
1: end if if the if jesse armstrong felt like it needed to which which i think i, I don't think it's going to happen i think they'll go to five i think they've got the juice
0: i think so and you know what helps that is, you know, the real sort of like prestige and hype machine that has kicked in around the show. We know that relatively few people watch Succession. It's really tough to, you know, have like sort of a linear TV breakout hit in the streaming era uh but you know succession does seem to have captured a lot of eyeballs in terms of just like online coverage media coverage and of course uh awards attention do you want to talk gabby about how we did at the emmys this year i keep saying we we always we always uh, joke about this we talk about the show in the first person it's our show you know we, we treat it like it's our show uh we we, we feel a sense of ownership hey. but how did succession do at the at the emmys this year
1: yeah, so the Emmys were in September. Um, Brendan was playing, paying very, very close attention. I texted him the day of, and he was like, oh, As shit, always. that's tonight. <laughs> um, yeah, but, I mean, looking at, like, the raw numbers, it might seem like it was a, a, a lackluster year at the Emmys for Succession, uh, but, you know, it's a little misleading because the show had a record number of acting nods and I think tied overall for the most nominations ever. Um and there were definitely a few disappointing losses. I mean, it's always tough when the categories uh, have two or three uh, representatives from succession. In this case, the big ones being uh, directing, lead actor, and supporting actress, um, all of which we lost. Um, although, shout out to to Jay Smith Cameron on uh, squeezing her way in there in the supporting actress field. Uh, so... That was exciting. She was there with uh, Sarah Snook once again. Um, hopefully we can get Alan Ruck in there with the supporting actors next year uh, if Succession is eligible, but whenever they're next eligible. But the wins were not small. Um, the first win was for casting, um, you know, like a category that I never really like paid much attention to, but... Uh, definitely have a newfound appreciation for I mean I think the number of acting nominations and particularly guest acting nominations that Succession gets every season is a very clear testament to the work of uh, A.B. Kaufman and Francine Mazler. so shout out to them best in the biz um Jesse Armstrong also won for writing for the finale and um the show won outstanding drama so you know no big deal you know like small awards <laughs>
0: The great thing uh, about the outstanding drama series, <laughs> just looking at the uh, the credits on that, is that you know those those awards are given to the producers of the show. And the Succession has so many producers, right. <laughs> but also but a lot of them are like writer producers. So I, I do feel that I, so it's nice to kind of like that those yeah. awards. You know, you have like Susan SUNY Stanton and like you know Lucy right. Preble, um, Will Tracy, everybody getting uh, getting their statues there, getting their moment on stage, which yeah, and- is really nice because it is a very is is very written show, obviously. So it, it's great to see that recognition there.
1: And we pay close attention to the Emmys because it's, you know, quote unquote, the most prestigious one. It's the Academy, but Succession has cleaned up across all other award shows. Uh, The the SAG Award last year was, you know, really, really exciting because it just, you know, gave, um, you know, an accolade to to some of the second and third tier actors who are just so tremendous, but, you know, will probably never um, end up with, you know, an Emmy. Um, but I think, you know, the biggest and most exciting Emmy Award uh, for us at the RoyCast was Mr. Matthew McFadden, Best Supporting Actor. Holy crap. I was screaming my head off. Um, just so exciting. And, um, you know, I know that, like, on the RoyCast, we sang Kieran Culkin's praises quite a bit for his work um, in season three. I think, you know, both Brendan and I agree that he he brought something to Roman in season three that we weren't sure he had in him necessarily and it was um really wonderful to see Karen Culkin's evolution as an actor particularly in the back half of season 3 but you know Mcfadyen is someone we have been screaming from the rooftops about since season 1 so this almost feels you know like a retroactive award in that sense
0: Yeah I mean Jeremy Strong I think won the first acting Emmy for the show in the second yes. season um and, you know, he is kind of the breakout star of the show. We'll talk about him a little bit more tonight. But, uh, you know, his star is the one that's kind of like most on the rise. You know, McFadden mm. is somebody who, by contrast, was already, I think, quite well established. Maybe not as famous in the U.S. as he is in the U.K., but he's, he's right. very successful in the U.K. He's very well known. He works steadily. So he's somebody we always knew was good. But this is a performance um, that manages to be surprising every time he inhabits this part and you know, as I said at the time, it's the kind of acting that makes awards superfluous. Um, so it's it's a feather in the Emmys cap. It's a credit to them that they recognized it. Um, you know, he you know he doesn't need the recognition, um, but it's a it's a fantastic choice, and we're very we're very very happy to see him recognized there. Yeah.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and that category always has um, you know Nick Braun and and Kieran in it. So um, you know, there's always the fear that the votes get split, like which is most likely what's happening with uh, Strong and Cox, um, you know, Strong won for season two, but this this, this year uh, it was a Squid Game win. I'm not going to go into that. But... Yes,
0: uh, yes, Squid Game in the lead acting category. <laughs> yeah, again, I haven't seen, I, mean, I watched a little bit of Squid Game, you know, one of those things I turned off quickly, not for me, um, you know. But I imagine, congrat-
1: yeah, Jeremy was, was probably a pretty close number two there, but yeah, it's tough, you know, with uh, with, with those two heavyweight performances. Yeah, I but mean, it's of...
0: interesting, too. I mean, one of the factors that, you know, makes it difficult for me to take the Emmys seriously, I think I've talked about this before, is just the inertia of it. You kind of, right. once somebody wins, you kind of expect to see them keep winning year after year. You know, Peter Dinklage kept winning. Brian Cranston, you know, started, mm-hmm. once he started winning, he kept winning. Um, so, you know, there was a thought that maybe, you know, Jeremy would have back-to-back wins. He didn't. Um, but, you know, uh, we're, we're certainly not going to complain, I think, about the, the amount of recognition succession has gotten, With which is at this point, it's like, can we, can we get a perfect score on the nominations card? Can we get literally every... Every single actor on this show nominated for an Emmy. It sure seems like they're, they're trying and it seems like every award show is trying to figure out a way to to squeeze them in um, somehow. Um, But talking of, uh, of, uh, of Kendall Roy, of Jeremy strong um, and of some of the plans we have, we've been promising for a while to do an episode about uh, Jeremy's uh, latest film Armageddon time, which I guess has kind of come and gone from theaters already. Um, you Very know, we're gonna quickly. Talk, we're going to talk a little bit about the films of 2022 in this episode, because this is sort of our, our year in review episode, where we talk about some of the stuff that interested us, some of the things that we were thinking about this year. Um, and, you know, one of the themes was a lot of kind of traditionally what you might pejoratively or unfairly call Oscar bait type films, just sort of like prestige films, adult dramas, sort of, you know, tanking at the box office. Not There was not a lot of stuff that stuck Um, you know Armageddon time was kind of a victim of that but our plan is to do a special episode about this we do think it's worth talking about you know not only about that movie but about its director James Gray first because we we know that the career of Jeremy Strong is of interest to us and to our listeners and secondly because that film's subject matter and its themes as well as the broader themes of Gray's filmography have these points of commonality with the discussions we have on this show. I mean, I reviewed the movie for CinemaScope magazine. That issue may or may not be out by the time this episode drops. I think it's going to be out in the first or second week of January. And I think it's difficult to talk about the movie in short form, and we certainly don't want to um, wade too much into the territory we're going to get into on that longer episode, which we're going to do with a guest. Um, but it's an ambivalent movie that sort of lacks some of the sort of straight ahead or more conflict driven melodramatic narrative structure of some of his other movies um movies he's always been somebody who sort of operates from that basis of classical melodrama from the hollywood and the italian cinema he loves and he's drawing on those influences here to make something that doesn't fit easily into anyone reading or offer kind of like conventional catharsis and i guess that's a long way of saying i don't see jeremy or anybody else there winning oscars um but uh, yeah but it, but it...
1: The, the timing wasn't great it, it kind of uh didn't really make a mark in terms of uh, being in the theaters for very long. Not that that's a problem unique to Armageddon Time. That's a, a problem across the board for, for mid-budget films right now. But yeah, it also kind of got eclipsed a little bit by uh, The Fablemans, which is like a similar, uh, you know, director telling his life story. Steven Spielberg, obviously uh, m- much more name recognition than, you know, James Gray and, and the film came out recently. So that's kind of... Um, you know, also worked against it. But I loved Armageddon Time. I think it's streaming now, right somewhere. I don't know for free yet. I don't know if you still have to rent it. But you guys should, um, you guys should watch it. It was beautiful. I loved it.
0: Yeah, I believe it's available on uh, on video on demand. Um, You know, we'll talk about it when we do the podcast. But I mean, Gray has historically had difficulty promoting his films and getting Mm -hmm. them seen by audiences. He's, he had a couple of movies that were distributed and kind of mangled or sabotaged by harvey weinstein um infamously when he made two lovers with joaquin phoenix that was when phoenix was in the middle of his um his i'm still here period where he grew the big beard and did his sort of disastrous david letterman appearance um you know on purpose but the the movie he was ostensibly there to promote was gray's two lovers so that certainly didn't help uh, Mm. because nobody was talking about the movie Um, so despite this new one sort of failing to break out again it's sort of of nice that you know unlike Phoenix Strong who's also expressed this aversion to the press circuit has thrown himself into the promotional machine for it It, which to me also suggests that someone on his team or at Focus Features at some point thought he had a shot at a supporting actor nomination if you look at the poster for this movie with all the names of the actors you know Anne Hathaway, Anthony Hopkins it looks like a four year consideration ad one that I don't think uh, quite had the, the reach that they were hoping for
1: yeah, it's unfortunate. I like uh, you know, the the last year's equivalent was kind of Belfast and Anthony Hopkins was also in that. Did he win the Oscar for that? I don't know. Um, but that was the other, you know, director life story. Oh, Hop-
0: Hopkins won for uh, for The Father. Yeah, you're you you are you are touching you are touching on something real here this trend of sort of auteur memoirs. Um, you know, I was I recently watched Joanna Hogg's The Souvenir Part 2. Which is very loose, which is you know quite closely based on her life, and uh, I love those movies. This part one and and part two especially. Um, You know, Terence Davies' Benediction this year is a biopic of the poet Siegfried Sassoon, but there are you know commonalities with Davies' own life. Um, You know, Empire of Light, the Sam Mendes film, I think uh, touches on some similar territory. So yeah, I mean, we may get into this a little bit more, but you know, I think there is a sense that maybe as the theatrical market of the business of making movies becomes more tenuous uh more sort of uncertain even for these figures who have historically not had trouble getting films financed uh, they're kind of using their uh, their one for me on the way out you right. know to to uh to, to tell the to tell the very sort of quote-unquote personal story they've had in their back pocket this whole time and it's very, and I think I think in that context, Armageddon Time is super, super interesting because despite what some detractors have said about it, I don't find it a film that is self-aggrandizing in the slightest. It's no, extremely, I don't think so either. It's but, extremely yeah. pessimistic.
1: We will have a time and a place to to delve into this. So yeah, watch the movie, guys. It's a uh, it's great. Jeremy's good in it. And then, just yeah, very quickly, uh, succession adjacent adjacent news. Uh, the new Peep Show, although it's not a quite Peep Show, very different. New Peep
0: Show. People have been clamoring for it. New Peep Show. Yeah, I I I I I understand that there have been attempts to adapt Peep Show to a, an American audience before. Um, I'm not actually I don't actually have the data on that, but you know it feels I find that so funny, but... hard
1: to adapt. Like it's it's so. So singularly British. I don't know.
0: It's one of those classic TV scenarios where it seems easy because the format is so loose. It's two friends right. who you know share a flat or an apartment. Um, <laughs> but the uh, but this but the specific humor and the chemistry of those writers yeah. and performers is, of course, what makes the show actually work. And you can't easily replicate that. I think the fact that Jesse is said to not be actively involved with the show is probably for the best. Right. The but he is an made...
1: executive producer. Yeah.
0: He is an executive producer because, of course, it's, it's his original show. Uh, the showrunner they've tapped is Stephanie Robinson, who's done amazing work balancing sophisticated, sort of like high concept humor and characters with gag work on Atlanta. Um, and I think she's mm-hmm. a good bet for somebody who can take that very flexible premise and make it their own thing. So I will be looking forward to it, but maybe it also gives us a, a future news hook to hang our eventual sort of peep show podcast on.
1: Yeah, we're going to do it like a multi-part Peep Show. In the Loop. Four Lions. All of it, right?
0: We, yeah, we. Lo- I mean, we'd love to talk about all that stuff at some point. Again, I won- I'm not going to make promises we can't keep. Um, it's, it's, it, it, you know, it's tough to think about. How do you cover a show like Peep Show without doing a whole nother podcast series about right. it? You know, how do you cover? You know, how many seasons is it? Eight, nine seasons in a, in one episode of a podcast? You know, it would well in typical Roycast style, it'd be three to four hours long. Um, but. You know, I I do think it's something that we would like to talk about at some point, obviously, because it's it's very important to the the trajectory of Jesse Armstrong. Yes. So yeah, I mean, we're we're talking a little bit already about some kind of trends in the business of you know moving pictures, film, TV, generally, and Gabby and I have been talking recently about a sort of spate of articles and. A general sort of like complaint or critique or just observation that's being voiced. And so I want to cite um, a few things here. Um, there's a recent Financial Times article. We'll drop these citations in the, uh, in the show description. But this, uh, this Financial Times article is called The Succession Effect, How TV Dramas Got Angrier About the Rich. And I'm going to try to sum this up with this paragraph here. Anyone who has seen the 1946 film It's a Wonderful Life, in which James Stewart's George Bailey takes on a town's callous moneylenders and wins, will tell you that heaping scorn on the rich is not a new thing in the entertainment business. But the sheer number of productions currently challenging the social and economic status quo and showing the super-rich as feckless and cruel suggests a real anger at a world where the richest 10% own three quarters of global wealth and rampant inflation and food and energy prices is hitting the less well off the hardest. And I guess briefly, we want to say that some of the other citations there are, um, you know, recent series like Riches on Amazon, we're talking about The White Lotus, we might be talking about The Menu, uh, Triangle of Sadness, films that we'll discuss a little bit more today. Um, I also want to rope in a recent tweet Uh, which goes as follows. Uh, Personally, I think we are in dire cultural straits when the inner lives or lack thereof of rich people are the primary subject matter in supposedly subversive slash edgy television, parentheses, White Lotus succession. And finally, uh, just uh, a little while ago, I read an article by Vanity Fair's Richard Lawson called Hollywood's Eat the Rich Satires Need Sharper Teeth. He says, and I quote, But where is the art that seeks to destroy the paradigm, to upend the status quo rather than simply gesturing toward it or walking among it with a weary smirk? I suppose Triangle of Sadness came closest to that this year, debasing and leveling its structure of power before and its apathetic irony beginning to rebuild it. I yearn though for something even more totalizing and bold in its attack. I want to see the rich really eaten, chased from their mansions and reduced to rubble. that's I mean a very strong point of view I guess what do we but what do we make of all this are these kind of the same complaint there's certainly a thread that's running through these right because there's this assumption that underlies all these critiques these observations these trend pieces Um, and there were a few more pieces that we could have roped in but we didn't Um, but there's this assumption
1: very very buzzy at the moment yeah
0: but there's an assumption underlying this commentary that we have more art about the rich than we used to. And I'm not convinced this is actually true, or at least I haven't seen anyone cite to actual data here. Right. Listing a few recent buzzy films and TV shows, I don't think that's persuasive. And as that FT article points out, plutocrats, the idle rich, have been screen villains and subjects of satire since the early days of Hollywood. I think what might be true is that we perhaps have richer people than we ever have before, and income. You know, income and economic inequality is starker than it's ever been before. That's backed up by data. So we might say that we're just bound to notice these disparities and these disparities are more glaring um, than they have been in the past.
1: Yeah, I think that's really the key there, Brendan. I think um, that is what is being reflected here in this sort of uptick of, of uh, this eat the rich genre, so to speak. Um, income inequality is basically becoming impossible to ignore Uh, and it's you know starting to hit people who might have thought that they were previously um you know shielded from from its repercussions uh everything is more expensive people are not earning more to keep up and yet we are still an enormously wealthy country so where is all that money and the answer of course is that it continues to trickle upward um the rich have always hoarded wealth but the status quo is i mean it's simply unprecedented i i also just don't think people even really have a solid grasp or conception yet of just how much wealth is floating around in the upper strata but there is a growing class consciousness especially you know from what i see in in certain milieus that i spend time in among um working white collar folks professional folks who may have like i said previously been able to kind of um ignore this and um you know, it, they are now impacted by it. They see their salaries stagnating while the prices of, um, you know, the price of groceries, childcare, healthcare, health care is skyrocketing. People cannot afford to have children, um, you know, professional people prof- who, you know, in, in decades past in America would have been able to have a, a, a comfortable middle class life uh, are, are having to compromise in ways that they never expected. And. I think yeah, a lot of the media that that we're seeing right now is um, a response to that fear, that frustration, and and the righteous anger that there is so much wealth being hoarded at the top, um, and and um, yeah, I'm you know I'm I'm glad that you know I don't know if Succession set something off. It does seem to have maybe set something off in a way. Again, there has always been media about the wealthy, but. Um, yeah, there's maybe something specific to Succession in the way that it has uh, has portrayed, uh, you know, its central family that, that has maybe led to something a little bit different.
0: Well, I don't, yeah, again, I don't know that I would say that Succession started anything off. I mean, obviously, whenever you have a hit show or a movie, there's right. going to be people who try to imitate it. I'm not sure that I'd cite anything recently as being really Succession imitators. I'm not sure that... Um, right. I mean, most of it.
1: the stuff that we're talking yeah. about is, is not even really, it's about, uh, movies about, uh, you know, rich people on vacation or at fancy restaurants, exception well, it's is doing something, something, it's something different.
0: And, and something these articles don't even really capture, I think is, you know, the sheer amount of sort of nonfiction or narrative, uh, Television, or you know, sort of like reality products that you know deal with spheres of uh, obscene luxury. You know, we have all these shows about below you know, deck, the home, <laughs> the home buying market, selling sunset, below deck. Yes, I mean like below. And below deck is a show that I I, I love and I, I watch a lot, um, because I find its depiction of you know service work to be really fascinating. Um, but you know the I, I mean of course, not
1: also like real housewives i, I know it's it's yeah, it's yeah. sort of a, a, a punchline but but that is also something that has uh you know contributed to this conversation and to, yeah. to uh you know what we have to say about and, and feel and feel about rich people and how they they conduct their lives
0: so a lot of this art has this real like nervous sort of like laughter behind it right as like people you know mm-hmm. hollywood's making fun of this stuff they're saying tee hee but there's a real sense of like Oh, gosh. Don't go you too know, far. Yeah. When, are the, when are the consequences coming for us? Right. But, you know, these shows are not really made by the, you know, they're financed perhaps by the, the 0.1% or what have you, but they're not really right. written by them. They're written by people who are close enough to that sphere to have some observations about it, perhaps, uh, but they don't actually experience it. And so there's a tremendous amount, I think, of, you know, perhaps sort of like displaced guilt or maybe, you know, an obligation that, you know, creatives feel, to you know, insert some of their own politics in the work. And I'm going to quote again from that Financial Times article, because there's a very germane quote from Succession's Lucy Preble. She says, in Shakespearean times, you might explore human flaw or tragic frailty through a royal character. Nowadays, that might be more likely to be a CEO or a tech overlord. I think the delight some people find with Succession is how ugly, petty, and unhappy the lives of the mega wealthy can be, being driven to have and keep Vast amounts of money, even when you have enough, reveals a certain sort of personality to begin with. Uh, she, conti- she continues by saying that the, uh, the writers are interested in a sort of pathetic and cowardice and great disdain that permeates the corporate world, something that that sector desperately tap dances to hide. If we can make the life of finance or banking or consulting seem more like what it is, in a moral talent drain of young people processed into graduate life that will financially reward them but not actually fulfill them, that I'm happy. So that's interesting because I think Preble's, you know, very explicitly saying something, you know, about, you know, the audience that these shows are kind of consciously or not consciously pitched at, which is, you know, a little bit, you know, it's the HBO audience. It's a little bit petty bourgeois, right? Um, Mm -hmm. It's people with a little bit of, you know, uh, upward mobility, perhaps discretionary income. It's not people in really dire straits that these shows are actually pitched at. Right. Uh, So so what do you what do you think of this, Gabby? I mean, like this also strikes me as something that, you know, something I've thought about Adam McKay often, right, is who's one of the producers on Succession and something that you see as a clear trajectory in his movies over time. He stops making comedies and, he you know, he's clearly got these left of center, you know, perhaps even socialist politics. And, you know, he feels some obligation to use his platform, as it were, to uh, to to educate people about these issues.
1: Right. I mean, I'm really glad Preble came out and made this bold, explicit statement. Like, thank you. Like, she, like I I mean, not to
0: <laughs>
1: it's kind of silly to say that the, the writer of her own TV show is hitting the nail on the head about her TV show. But she is. I mean, she's a she's a brilliant woman and she expressed this um, exactly as it needed to be expressed, that succession is so effective in its critique of the wealthy and it's. You know, more broadly, it's critique of of the actual desire to accumulate massive amounts of wealth, um, and you know we've said from the early days that while the trappings of of extreme wealth are conveyed in a very true to life way on succession, um, it somehow still manages to be de aspirational. Um, nobody is happy. You you might get a shot of some, you know, exquisite mansion or yacht that gives you a pang of jealousy. But the people inside the show are miserable and trapped and lonely. And I think um, this is the key difference in what, you know, quote unquote, media about the wealthy is attempting to do today. And, and I, you know, I do keep up with this, uh, this, you know, growing trend of media about the foibles of the wealthy. And, and I still think succession is the best and most nuanced from what I've seen Um, at capturing the, you know, the corporate cowardice, as she says, and the more, um, and then again, the more micro human misery um, that that is um, embedded in all of that. But but overall, I think it's, um, it's a net good that we're having arguments about whether um, XYZ rich person movie or TV shows satire was effective enough. It's, you know, it's fun for critics and people like us to dig into, you know, what worked and what didn't in a particular TV show and movie. But in general, the shift towards portraying the wealthy and the pursuit of wealth and power as pathetic is something that people like me who have, you know, long worked in anti-poverty policy are very, very happy about. I'm, I'm ecstatic that Elon Musk is on Twitter making a fool of himself and people are saying, you fucking loser. You're the richest guy in the world. What are you doing? Um, on Twitter, you know, making pathetic jokes like, yes, more more stuff that shows that the, the, the pursuit of wealth is pathological and it hurts people, um, you know, and, and like I said, just going back to, you know, some of you know, my professional background and work I've done, you know, you can help people who are suffering, but you can't actually long term, um, you know, cure any of this inequality or, or push back on it without some sort of systemic overhaul and that requires calling out the wealthy and the systems in place that allow them to hoard this exorbitant amount of wealth while so many people suffer and and, and go without um you know and and so I'm glad I'm, and I'm glad that you know HBO shows and like I said people who maybe are working class professionals who are starting to see their lives you know maybe play out in in ways that that they didn't expect they see themselves now as you know (laughs) there's that that joke about um people who you know defend the wealthy you know think of themselves as you know just temporarily embarrassed millionaires or whatever and i think maybe people are starting to realize that they are closer to the bottom than they will ever be to the top um because that's that's how the system has been designed and so um I'm really glad to debate the merits of any work that attempts to critique the rich and convey them in a deaspirational light. I'm 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 grateful that it's a it's a growing trend and yeah, I, I read the Lawson article and I understand his uh his urge that to to see something that just that goes for it in a little bit more of a uh, you know, spellbinding and, and catastrophic way. Uh, like, it, it does seem like a lot of these movies and TV shows, um, you know, pull back. And you know, like you said, they get a little nervous and self-conscious. But nevertheless, um, I think the needle is moving in the right direction. Uh, succession, again, I still think is the best at it. And because of, um, you know, quotes that, the, the quote that, that, that Brendan read and, and, and the, you know, the, the theoretical underpinning that Preble and Armstrong are, 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 working with here, um, is, is very, very on point. So that's why I think it works so well, but,
0: well, but yeah. Super fa- um, it's super fascinating. I mean, there's a bit of like tail wagging the dog question, right? Because in my mind, all this stuff, like is it's always, you know, you say it's very good that we have art that is, you know, perhaps, you know, making people rethink their relationship um, with wealth, with you know, aspiring to this sort of luxury or privilege, um, but I, I, you know, I, I always think of these as kind of you know, these come a few years later, right? They're they're you know, Hollywood's not driving these trends; they're responding to them, right? Mm-hmm. They're trying to ref- they're you know, these creatives, these people are trying to reflect what they see in reality and what they experience, and I think this conversation about you know, the kind of trends that Succession fits into is a good and it's maybe it's an inevitable one for us to be having as we're gearing up for another season of the show, another season of our podcast where we ask ourselves, you know, what are we doing here? (laughs) We're recapping Mm -hmm. an HBO show. We're spending hours a week rewatching and annotating the episodes. We're making notes, editing and releasing this podcast into a media environment where every extant digital outlet is also recapping and providing analyses of various minutiae and you know interviewing everybody on the show more podcasts official and not continuing to crop up so why are we so invested in this well i mean we could answer that we've recorded you know 30 some odd episodes of a show that you know tell you why but you know our argument has always been that succession has a two-pronged appeal and that the first one is yes political that's what Initially, I think piqued my interest that the show was coming from Adam McKay and collaborators of Armando Iannucci. I wasn't familiar as much with Jesse Armstrong at the time, but these were figures I considered to have sympathetic politics. Here would be a a portrait of our super rich by artists who, quote unquote, get it. That's what brought the first wave of viewers in the door, I think, us day one fly Mm -hmm. guys until this, you know, this larger apparatus of hype and prestige claimed the show and started pushing it out. But the second prong of the appeal, the thing that actually keeps you watching, I think is not that You want to see the characters punished. I don't think that's why we keep watching at all. The the reason we keep watching is because their experience describes emotional, material, political truths that we all experience day to day. The Roy's reality is not ours, but it's perhaps arguably a distorted and magnified version of ours. They're not free from that creeping dread that we all feel as we wonder when our world is going to go off the rails and for good. You know, and, and and TV has always had this moralizing, pedagogical function. You know, you look back at old classic TV shows like The Defenders, where you'd have a topical case of the week that addressed a social issue. Um, but thinking about, you know, Lawson's piece, I guess I just disagree that this is or has ever been the function that Hollywood serves Mm-hmm. Um, I won't. I, I don't want to pretend that what Lawson is asking for is something more strident, you know, like The Newsroom or The Good Fight, these shows we've made fun of before, something that just spells things out more clearly. Um, you know, I think Hollywood can't do our politics for us, and we shouldn't expect it to. Um, mm-hmm. You know, in a possible segue to our next topic, you know, about the TV and film we liked this year, you know, I wrote about the show Andor for my Substack, which a lot of people had a lot of fun arguing about. Is this actually, you know, radical, revolutionary television? Um, I cited that Robin Wood essay where he describes the ideology of Hollywood entertainment as not paradigmatically liberal or conservative, um, but actually hopelessly muddled and contradictory. That's just the nature of this kind of entertainment that might have you know, sympathetic, progressive, liberal, leftist, whatever you want to call it, kinds of ideas, but is dependent upon this incredible structure of wealth and privilege to sustain itself. Um, And my theory, my reading about, you know, the sort of like resentment as we see reflected in Lawson's piece and in that tweet um, about this genre or this trend is that what people are actually longing for is art that imagines a way out of the trap.
1: That all of these artworks
0: are describing right? Because we say that over and over again on the show, that that's the key theme, the key motif of succession is the trap, it's the cage, it's the death pit, um, the thing we're all locked in together. And there's great value, I think, in succession and art that relates that truth and describes it in a way that is articulate and it's funny and it's tragic. But could it be possible for, you know, our art, maybe even from Hollywood to show us you know an alternative it doesn't have to be something that shows rich people being filleted and you know hunted down with pitchforks right um, but could they show us something besides you know telling us that we're all doomed um and i you know and i thought i've been thinking recently about a show that did try to do that um mr robot which i don't think you watched gabby did you
1: i did not know
0: no, but I mean, and and that show was not always successful. You know, it was generic in some ways. And, you know, a lot of big swings it tried to take didn't pay off. But one thing I thought it really did sincerely try to do was it did describe this sort of like late capitalist hellscape and tried to sincerely grapple with what an exit strategy from that death trap of modern life might look like for its characters.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: it's solution that it came up with in the final episodes in some ways was kind of a cop out. But in other ways, I thought it was extremely moving to see it attempted. And some viewers may have gotten a similar charge out of that rallying cry in Andor you know, especially in that prison escape episode. I don't know if you, I don't think you watched the show, Gabby, but you've surely seen it no. screen capped and referenced, you know, the prison escape where they're all chanting one way out, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, cause these aren't solutions that we can pick up. We can't do what the characters on these shows are doing in real life. They right. can't instruct us about how to fix our world, but you know, we don't need our art to instruct us. We just need it to sustain us. You know, that's,
1: I, I think there's like this, this, um, you know this desire for catharsis again like that's why maybe Lawson said that he liked triangle of sadness the best because um it does kind of like <laughs> in a very grotesque way um sh- you know show uh, the absolute kind of uh, downfall of some very evil people in in a, in a in a violent way and and maybe that's what people want to see more of but i mean how true is that really um uh, maybe it's frustrating for people to to be asked to engage with a show like Succession and its characters. And, you know, again, like we can circle back to the conversation that we've been having since day one of like, well, I don't want to watch these characters. They're bad people. They're not sympathetic. Um, but I think if you just have, uh, you know, a bunch of media about rich people where, yeah, again, they're all being, you know, tarred and feathered at the stake. Um, I don't know, is it true to life? Is it is it really cathartic because you wake up the next day and you know that's not happening?
0: Yeah, it's it, it's not true to life and ultimately I just don't necessarily think that that kind of thing would be that interesting. One thing that might right. be interesting to, to table and we'll have to table this conversation and move on to what we have on the rest of our outline, but something that I'm very interested in, sort of like half dreading uh, coming up this year is um, there's going to be a movie coming out that I think... Um, tries to to tackle some of what uh, Lawson and some of these other folks are asking for. Um, A movie called How to Blow Up a Pipeline, um, which is getting a big, buzzy release from Neon, uh, a very uh, money distributor that is going to put a marketing campaign behind it. And I don't know how that movie is going to be received. I had the opportunity to see it this year, and um, I think it has a lot to recommend it. I think from the sort of... Some of the mixed reactions I've seen to it already, I, I don't think that it's going to be universally claimed by people perhaps on our side of the political spectrum as, you know, an unalloyed good. Um, but I am very interested to see how the public responds to it. And with that said, let us move on to some of the films and TV that came out this year that we liked. Um, because we want to do a little bit of our year in review and talk about the things that, uh, that we did enjoy or the other things that, you know, everybody was telling us we had to watch. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so we can, we can briefly do TV. Um, I don't think you saw a ton of TV this year, Gabby, or at least not the ones that, uh, that I was talking about.
1: Yeah. I, uh, you know, I, righteous gemstones, obviously we had a whole, you know, Two parter podcast on that. I can't believe that was this year. That was this I wa- year. Yeah, I. I My God. Watched, I watched a lot of stuff this year. Um, you know, nothing particularly stood out to me in the TV world. A couple things which I'll talk about in a little bit. But, but yeah, and the rehearsal, of course. I see you have the rehearsal here, which. Um, yeah,
0: I mean, the rehearsal to me I was loved. like was you know one of like the obvious media events of this year. It's too big a topic yes. to get into now. Right. But, I mean, I I think that, you know, I I, I did, um, when I was on a plane recently, I rewatched the finale and was just completely bowled over again by how just genuinely shocking and surprising it was. Um, So good. And I think, you know, one metric, I don't know if this is something that, you know, necessarily means that a show is good, but something that, you know, you kind of have to observe is I have never seen critics certain critics get as angry at a show <laughs> as a, as a few certain critics who I won't name on this podcast but it's pretty easy to find out who they are certain critics with big bylines got so mad about the rehearsal i oh, was oh
1: man i'm trying to recall the discourse about rehearsal people being I was, angry about I was it, but i was
0: quite taken aback by oh, that
1: must it must <laughs> so funny i got to be reminded because yeah, I mean, how can you be mad at that show? I don't know.
0: Well, I mean, I, again, we don't want to get into it because it's such a huge <laughs> topic. Some it's uh, so good, you know. Some writers yeah. like Ar- Arlen Golden and Sophie Mavari have written really uh, compelling and interesting pieces about how it engages with documentary and nonfiction and reality television as as forms and as you know sort of legacies of representation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and so there is a lot there that I think is genuinely provocative and when there's stuff that's provocative, right. people, not everybody's gonna gonna like it. And there were a lot of things in the show that made me uncomfortable. Um, you know, yeah. but, uh, but that's, that's not true. a bad thing. That's true. Other shows I liked, I mean, I, I, we just talked about Andor, I wrote about it for my sub stack, you know, uh, with the basic thrust that the, the genre elements and I think that prison arc in particular are pretty great. There's some really good filmmaking there, but that everybody calling it revolutionary propaganda needs to calm the hell down. Um, I also, <laughs> I also uh, unexpectedly, I really enjoyed House of the Dragon um, when I could see what was going on uh, in the show. that that specific narrative structure that it employs, this is the Game of Thrones prequel that takes place, you know, many uh, centuries before the events of, of that series... You know, it, it, this, the structure of House of the Dragon is that between episodes, it takes these big time jumps that will unite the characters, usually in a single location for an event like a wedding or a funeral. And this reminded me a lot of Succession. I think they took the right cues from Armstrong. You know, Gabby, if we're looking for shows that were influenced by Succession, we might look at House mm. of the Dragon as one that Interesting. I think is, is, is probably a pretty clear case of, you know, people that were undeniably aware of Succession and I think likely took some of the right lessons from it. You know, in terms of using some of these kind of almost theatrical devices to build this mounting sense of tragedy and inevitability, this it would actually I would actually full heartedly recommend this show if it didn't look like garbage. Um, yeah, I and, mean,
1: I'm not. You, you guys should know if you don't already. I'm not a fantasy genre person. It's not something that I <laughs> begrudge anybody for liking. Most people in my life watched Game of Thrones and. Um, love Lord of the Rings and stuff like that but it just it it has never worked for me as a genre Um, but the way people talked about House of Dragon was you know it was the first time that I really thought hmm like maybe I don't know maybe I should give this a go
0: yeah I mean friend of the show Jeremy Mongeau gave it his recommendation and when Jeremy likes a show I I sit my white ass down and I and I watch it um Another another great HBO show, I basically just watched HBO shows this year, um, Irma Vep would be up there as the other best, along with the rehearsal, is the other best thing I saw this year. Um, Gabby said something very funny when I asked her if she'd watched it. She said she couldn't get into it because of the lore. Um <laughs> which, I, uh, which made me laugh really hard, but it, it is true. The, the show has lore. Uh, it's the, for those who don't know what Irma Vep is, it is really difficult to actually summarize. Um, it is a reboot slash continuation of Olivier Assayas' 1996 film, Irma Vep, which was itself about a contemporary film crew remaking the 1915 silent film serial, Les Vampires, about a gang of criminals in Paris. And this new series stars Alicia Vikander as a fictional film star playing the femme fatale role Irma Vep in another such remake, just as Maggie Chung played a fictionalized Maggie Chung in the 1996 film. So it is rather convoluted. but So I'll just briefly say about Irma Vep, which is an eight-episode series you can watch on HBO. Most filmmakers of Assayas's generation or older are retreating into the past or, as we've discussed, making these sort of plainly autobiographical screen memoirs. Um, and the new Irma Vep is not not part of this trend because it is more transparently autofictional actually than any of those recent films. But I mostly appreciate that Assayas sees the state of cinema and all the challenges and the crises it's facing. But he's energized by these, rather than depressed, and the show is as funny and as fun to think about as anything else I saw this year. So that's that's a strong recommend.
1: Should I talk about The Crown real quick before we get into movies?
0: Oh yeah, go, go off, Gabby. So you watched this season of The Crown, which was, this was the first Diana season?
1: This was the second Diana season.
0: Second Diana um, season. So Diana part two. Okay, so, so, tell, me, so two. tell me about it. Did it live up to expectations?
1: For an actress, no, sadly it did not. Um, I think, you know, I'm a big fan of The Crown overall, and I hope to be able to talk about it somewhere at length someday. Uh, oh, I happen to like uh, media about very, very depressed, powerful people. Um, <laughs> and The Crown does a very, very good job eluc- elucidating that uh, about the British royal family. I've always had a, you know, fairly nominal interest in the British royal family. But I think, yeah, it was pretty unanimous that season five was the weakest season of this show. Some of it was the casting. This is the last cast, so to speak. Um, as the show changes its principal cast every two seasons to denote the passage of time, the show starts, um, post-World War II era, um, and now we are sort of in the, the, the last two seasons, the last cast, so to speak. So um, yeah, I think the casting was a bit weaker overall, though there were some incredibly tough acts to follow. The show is cast very well and gets some, some huge names. Um, I mean, I, I, I wouldn't want to follow Olivia Coleman or Tobias Menzies or Matt Smith or Claire Foy, um, who all did incredible job as uh, Elizabeth and Philip in in different periods of time. my exceptions here would be Leslie Manville, who was absolutely captivating as princess Margaret. Uh, No, Brendan is a Manville Stan as well.
0: Oh yeah. Um, Mike Lee's another year. Great movie.
1: Okay. Good to know. And yeah, so I'd say all all the princess Margaret casting Vanessa Kirby and Helena bottom Carter has been extraordinary, especially given that uh, princess Margaret's a much tougher and more complex character to capture than say the queen. Um, I would say maybe she's the most interesting and human member of the British royal family of that era, and and I would recommend any the crown episode that centers on Margaret. Um, they are some of the show's best, and Manville definitely carried the torch. Um, the other exception I would say in the casting would be uh, Elizabeth Debicki, who played diana last season was emma corinne who also did a terrific job um but dabiki clearly spent a lot of time studying princess diana's movements and speech patterns um she will definitely get accolades for this performance um yeah she is a, a pretty you know impressive actress i had never really seen her in anything else she's very tall and they let her be not tall a, it was we-
0: <laughs> not a big uh, not a big tenant fan gabby
1: uh no <laughs> um so yeah it was kind of funny because emma corinne is petite and uh so it was like she literally grew up um <laughs> and um yeah i i overall the show felt a little more like propaganda than it ever has um this is not to say that the show is uh offers a skating critique of the british royal family but overall um it it you know, it, it was strange to me, and, and I, I, I wonder what was going on behind the scenes. Um, it was harsher on Princess Diana than it needed to be. Um, not that Princess Diana was a perfect woman, but she was thrust into a very difficult situation as a teenager, and it was much more sympathetic to her in the last season. I found them uh, using her son, Prince William, to convey her in a bad light and very poor taste when we know how much um, her sons adored her and, and, and what a dedicated and devoted mother she was. I know that Prince Charles and other members of the royal family were upset with their portrayal in the last season and it seems like showrunner Peter Morgan maybe uh capitulated to some demands because you know there was an entire episode this season about prince charles charity work that ended with (laughs) dominic west who played prince charles this season uh break dancing with like a bunch of underprivileged kids and it was just so schlocky and gross um that i have to believe that that you know maybe there was some capitulation here on the part of peter morgan to uh the british royal family's complaints about the show because they do watch the show um And, you know, West is a great actor, but he was also miscast here. I mean, he's, like, just too masculine and brawny to play the most English-looking man on the planet, Prince Charles. (laughs) Like, there's a a reason everyone forgets that Dominic West is English, right? Like, he plays Americans so well. I mean, it doesn't help that he has, like, this legacy character and McNulty, so, like, everybody thinks of him as this Baltimore guy. Um, But but he, you know, (laughs) look at Prince Charles. I mean, like, Josh O'Connor played him in the last season and, or last two seasons, actually. Um, And he did a terrific job capturing sort of like the dorkiness of Prince Charles, even though O'Connor is much more attractive than Charles. But it was, you know, the casting was much more typical, expected, the actor is hotter than the real life person type of thing. Um, But yeah, I was disappointed the show seemed to back down from challenging the british royal family in any way i mean again the show does not exist to offer some grand critique of imperialism or monarchy but it is not previously shied away from covering you know the geopolitical or independence movements in commonwealth countries um you know in fact it it, you know it covers the entire decolonial period after the war um, so some of the most interesting episodes are, are about the independence movements across the world, um, you know, nor has it shied away from covering very painful and unflattering interpersonal dynamics um, regarding the British royal family and their extended family and, and their relations with one another. But all of that was kind of muted this season, like the main personal crisis for the queen this season, um, you know, there was an episode in Latin saying it was like a the worst year ever and the queen talks about how she's having the worst year of her life because all of her children's marriages are failing and it's like that's not a big deal like uh who cares (laughs) you know
0: um (laughs) she's she's
1: literally devastated that all of her kids marriages failed she's like this is the worst thing that has ever happened to me literally
0: does the queen perhaps have main character syndrome
1: perhaps just a little
0: i think i think Um, i think you i think you probably can't help but contract main character syndrome if you are literally the queen
1: yeah but but the show has always done a good job at exploring her inner life and the fact that she was thrust into the position because her uncle abdicated and her father died um you know younger than expected and she never really wanted to be there um but she certainly has main character syndrome and um you know, when the queen died, I still can't believe she died. Like, it's just weird. King Charles, it's just I don't know. It doesn't come off the tongue naturally. Um, <laughs> <laughs> in my mind, she's still alive. Will always be alive. But, um, but Peter Morgan has called it a love letter to her, even though it it, it also again it doesn't um, you know doesn't exonerate her from things. It does imply in a lot of ways that she's not a very good mother, um, and uh, that she's sort of a simpleton and really you know not cut out for the job but um you know there was some interesting material this season with the Al-Fayed family which will obviously come more into play next season when Diana starts dating Dodi Al-Fayed but um it goes into some interesting background about his father um carried a lot of the good stuff here but you know yeah it was a bummer as they headed into an era where like the stakes are much higher you know if you watch some of the earlier seasons like there's some very low stakes episodes that are entertaining but it's not you know it's not this high drama all, all the time um but yeah the season felt neutered in comparison and, and you know the crown has like this enormous budget the, the production design is just like off the charts and there's this big dramatic score and just felt tamped down and, and, and muted in all those ways. So a lot was left to be desired. Um, big bummer for me, although, you know, I still watched it and I still generally enjoyed it. And there is one more season that will, you know, cover Diana's death and hopefully there will be some, you know, return to earlier form. Brendan, I know you don't watch The Crown, but I know you have, have seen a few episodes here and there
0: yeah I mean what you say about it being a big production I mean that's I, I watched I think I, I got like midway through season three I just fell off not for any reasons related really to the quality of the show I actually was enjoying it you know just got interrupted um but uh, it is you know if you've never seen the show I mean I do think it kind of goes under disgust the degree to which you know every everything is so expensive these days like I mean in terms of like film and television production but The Crown is one of those productions where they they really do put the money on the screen it is quite something to behold um, it's dazzling yes even if as television it's sometimes uh less than satisfying so we want to talk also about you know some films that we both saw uh, also you know as a sidebar um gabby is now on letterboxd um which uh, a development that i'm ecstatic (laughs) about we're going to turn one of my new year's (laughs) resolution is we're going to turn gabby into a film bro um uh, we're going to make her a cinephile um but uh, i'm getting
1: there you guys are helping thank you (laughs) uh
0: so if you if if you want to see our board you know our thoughts up to the minute thoughts on movies and stuff you can you can find us on there i'm brendanowitz on there same as my, my twitter handle and i think you're the same uh for you gabby right
1: yeah Jabriella, same as my twitter handle
0: yeah so i i think we'll, we'll limit this discussion of you know the films of the year to things that we've both seen um there were a lot of turkeys this year this isn't an we're not going to get into the oscars but i mean i do think it's interesting the degree to which this looks like the year that The Oscars are all set to embrace kind of like populist genre fare with movies like Mm. Top Gun Maverick and Elvis and everything (laughs) everywhere all at once, which, you know, is relatively speaking is an indie movie, but with, you know, big sci fi action elements to it. Um, Mm -hmm. All these movies are considered to be pretty much locks for Best Picture nominations at this point. um, Which is, you know, in some ways kind of a sign of the times, you know, like like we said, with a lot of these smaller prestige films flopping at the box office. Um, But, you know, it's also because some of the big prestige films this year just turned out to be absolute turkeys. Like Netflix is absolutely hosed at the Oscars this year because two of the big prestige films they bought, backed, Bardo and Blonde, have just been savaged. By critics i mean we i i didn't i didn't watch bardo um but i think gabby Neither and i both I. gabby and i both watched blonde but the the less said about that I mean, the, the better
1: i didn't finish it yeah
0: <laughs> yeah i mean you you get the point with with blonde pretty but pretty netflix
1: ne- netflix now has has a uh, you know glass onion so
0: yeah maybe there's a maybe there's a shot for glass Onion. we didn't really do any any notes about about glass onion but i think we both agree we had a better time with it than the original knives out which is maybe yeah a, I guess-
1: I was surprised that, that I enjoyed it a little more. I mean, again, it wasn't my... I didn't think it was you know particularly compelling. I kind of dozed off uh, for a good, like, 40 minutes of it, some of the flashback parts. But, yeah, I, I don't know. I had more fun than I expected. I know you did, too.
0: It's really funny when these movies come out, everybody pretends that they're all of a sudden an expert in the plot mechanics of sort of murder mysteries. Um, <laughs> you know, I don't really... I, I, I've read some of these. I've read some Agatha Christie. Not a ton. Um, but I think, uh, you know, the... The effort that Johnson makes to make these movies effectively period pieces that are set in the present day, you know, replete with topical references and sort of like memes and very trendy buzzwords and stuff has really deranged. Also
1: eat the rich kind of. Yeah, yeah very okay. much,
0: very much eat the rich. Oh, yeah, it's definitely a piece of what we're talking about. Um yeah. You know, that has deranged some critics who think that this stuff is cringe or that it's just ineffective comedy um, to the point where, you know, he really does not get credit, I feel, <laughs> from some people uh, for being as gifted a just sort of director of the camera as he is. He is a yes. very he is a very gifted visual filmmaker. This has always been true, even when his films, um, which he and largely writes himself, have been, you know, underwritten or maybe just, uh, you know, Poorly conceived. Um, even though there was some stuff in Glass Onion that I thought was, you know, not well written, um, I did consistently find it. Even though some of the production design is quite garish, it's also very intricate, and he consistently finds interesting ways to move the camera to stage scenes. Um, so I appreciate it in that sense. And uh, yeah, um, but we want to talk about. You know, some of our our favorite movies that we saw this year, that both of us saw. And so uh, topping a lot of critics year end lists that I've seen um, recently named the best film of the year by film comment uh, was uh, David Cronenberg's Crimes of the Future. Um, This is a very austere and, uh, you know, in Cronenberg fashion kind of uh, gross genre movie Uh, It has little chance (laughs) of winning Oscars, I think. You know, late style is an idea that gets talked about a lot with older auteur directors, and sometimes it's a fig leaf or a euphemistic way to say that someone's lost their touch um Hmm. Cronenberg definitely has access to fewer resources than he has in the past but he makes such a weird compelling world out of the like tax shelter post-austerity landscape of Greece that he shot it in um uh, in a funny coincidence I believe Glass Onion which is a very different milieu was also shot in Greece um but this film is you know it's very funny it's colorful in the manner of like classic science fiction with characters named Timlin and Whippet uh, <laughs> Timlin is the the Kristen Timlin was
1: the Kristen Stewart, yeah, the Kristen she was Stewart great. character.
0: Her performance is so so funny, you know, on purpose. I'm a big Kristen Stewart fan. Um, yeah, she's you know, wonderful. The scenes with her and Vigo are great. You know, I think it. You know, there's a good piece by uh, Patrick Preziosi on his Substack where he digs into the sort of classic science fiction influences um, that crimes of the future is indebted to. And I just, I just love this Cronenberg aesthetic. Yeah. With these funky names, with people saying things like surgery is the new sex, you know, it's, it's, <laughs> it's got a very classic kind of like cyberpunk noir plot. Um, and it's the ideas that engages with are really interesting, but honestly it's just a great mood. I really, I really liked the vibe of this movie. Although maybe Gabby, that's not quite what you took away from it.
1: Well, it was my first Cronenberg, so so maybe that colored it a little bit for me because I you know, you're saying it was a funny movie and and <laughs> I it was a lot for me. It was heavy. Um yeah, my first Cronenberg, like I said, I you know, I'm not a cinephile by by birth, by nature or whatever. Um I have a lot of gaps. Cronenberg is, is one of my gaps. Um and um yeah, maybe I should have started with another one, but it was still ex- like a wonderful movie the most unique film I've seen in a while and um yeah Adam Naiman you know good friend of the pod obviously uh you know very close friend of Brendan's and has, has been a guest here you should probably know who he is by now if you listen to our podcast um he tweeted something back in October when everybody was watching horror movies um asking if any parents like newish parents um conceive of the horror genre differently um, after becoming parents and I kind of tried to think like there were any examples of anything that disturbed me in a different way Um, I became a mother two years ago Um, so you know I couldn't really think of anything but then I watched this movie and I was like this is the movie (laughs) this is it it's funny because Adam had that you know uh, interview with Cronenberg in The New Yorker, right? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, a great interview. So and just
0: talking of how funny Cronenberg is, I mean, he doesn't get credit for that very much. If people haven't seen interviews with him, you know, you might be surprised by just how sort of like, you know, calm and like witty really? and like genteel he comes across. Very, uh, very unassuming presence.
1: Yeah, I need to go back and read that. But but yeah, um, this movie scared the crap out of me as a parent. I think a lot of post-apocalyptic type media like feels heavy-handed doesn't really work for me or resonate because I don't really think that's how, like, the end of the world is going to go down. I don't think it's going to, um, you know, involve constant mass catastrophe and sprinting zombies and so forth. It doesn't mean I don't enjoy those types of movies, but I think, you know, uh, this this type of, uh, you know, yeah, you know, austere genre movie that, that portrays, you know, some darkness about what the future is going to look like it, it it is going to be something that's a lot slower and more bleak um this movie kind of felt like the personification of of like depression for me um you know more so than mania which is what i see in a lot of like uh, post-apocalyptic movies and and so this movie was disturbing and difficult to watch and i i don't typically just like struggle with with the disturbing um yeah, and even though, like, uh, the you know, pared down landscape that you talk about, Brendan and Greece, like, it felt so much more creepy and realistic than, um, you know, your average end of the world fair. Like, that to me was a lot darker. The stuff that you're seeing on these, like, uh, you know, um, the, the streets when, yeah, Mortensen is kind of just like creeping around. <laughs> like, I don't know, it was, it was very original. The performances were great. I uh, love Leah Sudeau. Uh, yeah. Very much looking forward to delving deeper in, in my uh, you know pursuit of becoming a cinephile now with my letterbox and
0: everything. <laughs> I feel I feel <laughs> almost Cronenberg. Ins- I feel almost insensitive for talking about how funny I think the movie is. Again, for evidence of, of Cronenberg's <laughs> sense of humor, there was a great feature in uh, CinemaScope this year where uh, they published an interview between Cronenberg and actor Don McKellar, who plays Whippet in the movie. It's an extremely funny conversation. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is another movie that's sort of about an artist in decline, right? Because Mortensen is playing this kind of like body artist named Saul Tensor, another just amazing name. Um, yeah. <laughs> Cronenberg obviously has been thinking about mortality his entire career, and he's kind of like uniquely mm-hmm. suited um, to you know tackle the very like precarious state of movie making of you know the, the you know, making art in uh in a time of collapse and yeah i guess just having a longer relationship with his work i was just very pleased to be back in his uh in his head yeah um okay. another movie that we both saw and then we both really enjoyed and i want to hear you talk about a bit um was uh decision to leave um the new uh thriller by Park Chan-wook um which i think uh was also your first park right
1: yes, my first. Um, and then I watched The Handmaiden yesterday, actually, just to kind of, you know, give me another uh, reference point. And, and I loved it, you know, maybe even more than Decision to Leave. Um, but I thought Decision to Leave, yeah, it was beautifully crafted and acted. It's, it's definitely a film that I, I need to rewatch for sure, because Park's use of, uh, you know, like flashbacks and cuts and and what's actually there and what's not. Um, while I do think like it enhanced the film greatly like the cinematography is absolutely stunning there it's a little confusing especially while keeping up with the subtitles but um, I loved the central relationship and how it was drawn out uh, my, definitely the best romance on screen of the year mm-hmm. um, there's this quote that I, I don't remember the origin of but I kept thinking of it while I was watching the movie and watching these two characters kind of uh, you know fall in love and, and and navigate this this weird situation they were in and it's today everything is pornographic and nothing is erotic. And um, I think this movie like subverts that really effectively where I, I found this relationship and the development of it very erotic and sensual and romantic um, while not being, um, you know, gratuitous or particularly pornographic, which is not an easy task. Um, definitely not. Uh, you know, there was like a, a moment of, of them kind of... Uh, touching each other's fingers while they're handcuffed to each other that was you know sort of erotic there's a moment where her cigarette is um you know about to to ash it's that the ash is being drawn out and he ashes it for her and kind of like puts it back in her mouth like ooh, like this was you know very sensual stuff um i also enjoyed the cross-cultural and and linguistic elements in uh both decision to leave and the handmaiden um as a languages person who's done some professional translation interpretation work and and um, you know really finds translation interpretation something to be so important such a delicate art Um, you know I appreciated the attention to detail here with regard to you know the language and cultural barriers I don't know a ton about cross cultural relations at play, you know, the Korean-Japanese for handmaiden and Korean-Chinese for decision to leave, but I found it a very fascinating element of the movie, and I think it's cool how Park tackles it, um, and and the way that, um, she, you know, tries to, 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 to carefully, um, you know, modulate her communication with him to, to get certain things across. And, and I appreciate that communication barrier stuff between the two principals, um, especially as somebody who fell in love with and eventually married a non-native English speaker and had to navigate some of that stuff, um, early on my relationship. Um, so yeah, I mean, I thought it was a a beautiful film. I hope that it gets some, some attention, uh, from awards bodies and yeah, I, I look forward to seeing more of those films. Um, it was beautiful.
0: The way this movie was marketed, it was really funny to me. I saw a trailer for it that was just kept hitting you over the head with like, "Hey, you guys liked Parasite? Here's another Korean movie like Parasite. Oh
1: my god! <laughs> you know,
0: uh, why don't you give this one <laughs> no. Best Picture too? Um,
1: not, not that I didn't love Parasite, but that's so silly. <laughs> well, and on,
0: but honestly, honestly, seriously speaking, if I have any personal Oscars to give out this year, I'm giving Park Best Director and I'm giving Best Actress yes. to. Tang Wei, an amazing Chinese actress, um, who plays a female lead here. And I think this is the best performance I've, I've seen from her and my favorite performance of the year. Um, our friend Madeline wall called the movie straight Hannibal talking about the, uh, (laughs) the NBC TV series with Mads Mickelson. I think that's pretty bang on about the relationship dynamic here. Yeah. Um, well, the, the critical comparison Park's really begging from a, a Western point of view is, is Hitchcock's Vertigo, um, right. you know, obviously, which is considered one of the greatest films ever made. And a lot of movies have tried for, you know, for a Vertigo vibe and Park gets something that most imitators don't, which is that the plot of Vertigo is genuinely willfully convoluted and confusing. Um, I was mostly able to follow Decision to Leave with some big exceptions, but I think you can also just coast on Park's formal mastery. Yeah. I mean, you know, there are directors like, you know, Wes Anderson who try to put their stamp on every frame um, without being as skilled with moving and placing the camera as Park is. Every shot in his movies is interesting. Something is happening. Um, It's truly just virtuosic. I wouldn't want to spoil the ending for the world, but it really moved me. I mean, I read, um, I posted on, when I reviewed this movie on Letterboxd, I just excerpted this quote from Annie Arnaud's Simple Passion, because like everybody else, I heard about Annie Arnaud this year. Um, And there's a passage from that where she talks about taking a trip so that she can anticipate, you know, coming back and returning to her lover. And and she calls it an investment in imagination and craving through absence. Um, And the way that I think Park conveys this sort of like twisted gesture of love that concludes this movie um, gets at that. And it's, you know, like you can only call it just, you know, it's, it's pure cinema to be pretentious. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's really fantastic. Absolutely. I was, I was just blown away by it.
1: Yeah. Beautiful movie.
0: Um, downshifting slightly, maybe um, we'll, we'll talk, we'll talk about a, a film project that is significant within the succession verse perhaps, um, yes. uh, Mark Mylod's new feature, The Menu. Um, uh, this film is from a screenplay by Succession's Will Tracy and his former Onion colleague Seth Rice. Um, it stars Ray Fiennes as a celebrity chef at an ultra exclusive restaurant on a private island, which is welcoming a select group of wealthy diners, among them Nicholas Holt, Anya Taylor Joy, and familiar Succession faces like Rob Yang and Reed Burney, who we may remember as the vice president in season three's What It Takes. It's also supporting turns from the great Hong Chow, Judith Light, John Leguizamo, and we find out relatively quickly that the chef has invited all these diners there to kill them. So the eat the rich subtext is, you know, is literal and metaphorical, um, but it's quite uh, it's quite direct here. You know, and I've read and heard a number of interviews with Mylot about directing this movie. He draws comparisons to Robert Altman films and to Buñuel's The Exterminating Angel, which similarly has a very confined setting and is a satire of the bourgeois. And I felt his working methods from succession informing the, you know, kind of compressed scenario here and the sense of escalating absurdity and tension but, you know, the script is, you know, frankly sloppy, and a lot of its attempts at satire and social commentary don't add up for me. This The movie has this underlying idea that the fine dining world sees with class tension and barely suppressed hostility, but... Um, But that idea is just true and it doesn't need the kind of arch approach that the movie takes. You know, restaurant work is Mm -hmm. plenty dramatic on its own. And another trend this year was movies like Boiling Point or the FX show The Bear that have capitalized on that. Um, But it's got enough laugh lines and enough of the succession feeling that I, I enjoyed myself. Did you like it, Gabby?
1: Yeah, I had a good time. I mean, it might be the fact that it was the first movie I'd seen in theater since Parasite. Um, <laughs> don't hate me, cinephiles. I, I had a baby and there was a pandemic. Um, but I enjoyed myself. I, I really love Nick Holt. Um, I know you watched The Great also. I didn't watch season two, but I loved season one. Big L Fanning fan. And this is the first thing I've seen Nick Holt in. And he's just, you know, so dreamy and so funny and wonderful. I just rooting for good roles for him uh when he when he you know his character was gone like the movie kind of went off the rails for me a little bit the the central tension between Anya Taylor-Joy's character and the Fiend's character didn't really make much sense to me nor did the ending um but yeah I I, I had fun there were a lot of laugh lines um Hong Chao was was really good I was impressed by her uh, always good to see Judith Light and John Leguizamo, you know, just some legends. And, and then, of course, thrilled that, that you know, Rob Yang and, and Reed Bernie getting good work and, and Mylod and writer Will, succession writer Will Tracy, uh, you know, with the real box office hit, this movie actually did well. Um, it's funny because I, I saw it in theaters about a month ago and I have, you know, there's like, I live in a pretty small town now and there's a one AMC theater and I drive past it on the way to dropping off my son at daycare so, you know, I'm always kind of seeing what's what's playing and, and, you know, so many of the movies that we've talked about just came and went really quickly. But the menu is still there. Um,
0: yeah, that is still holding strong. That is really surprising to me. I mean, no slight against the movie or against my love. But right. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting <laughs> to think about like why this movie stuck around or so many were just kind of like, you know, blips. Um, but you know, I'm, I'm happy. I'm happy for, happy for my lot. Absolutely. want to, want to see him continuing developing the style. Maybe keep working with better scripts, maybe better performers. I don't really want to get into this, but Anya Taylor-Joy, you know, that's a real, like, are we sure she's good conversation? I mean, I'm, uh, I've never really been in on her. Did you, know? you,
1: did you see the witch?
0: I did. Of course. I, yeah. I saw the witch. Yeah. I mean, I, I liked the yeah. witch, honestly. I um, liked
1: her in that yeah
0: it's frankly it's a role that doesn't require a lot of expressive acting and it's in a very different register from the again the very arch satire she's required to do here i just felt right out of place for me yeah um,
1: no she didn't she didn't really work for me here i like her uh i understand why people like her she has sort of a, a unique look and and vibe um there is sort of this like stand around her now that uh makes me hesitant to <laughs> want to you know engage critique her. yeah yeah, engage it's, too it, much. yeah,
0: i mean it's, it's weird uh. yeah it's weird I I, I I was i think what kind of turned me off her was the queen's gambit which you know I, I read that novel and really loved the novel and just didn't find the show i mean like it wasn't just her it was the whole vibe of it the production i found it you know terrible netflix <laughs> yeah, I... sheen just really disliked that show and didn't think that she really um got at the character's intelligence or what was unique about her um so yeah it was just it was yeah. just unfortunate
1: but yeah, if we're talking about, uh, you know, young starlets developing sort of cult followings and, and Anya Taylor-Joy has has worked with one that we were very impressed with this year, uh, Mia Goth. Wow. Uh, Wawa Weewa. She is one impre- <laughs> impre- impressive woman. I was shocked. Like, I I uh, had not seen her in anything, but I watched Pearl and I was blown away. I, I really think she... Thread a very difficult needle here in this performance. It's very campy. Um, you know, she she plays a you know, homicidal sort of mentally ill woman, but um, there's also this you know whole um, you know f- foreground of her being kind of uh, you know abused by her oppressive mother, and she has these dreams of of Hollywood and. Um, I mean, the movie looked beautiful. It was uh, took place. What there's there's a pandemic as the Spanish flu, like nineteen. Yeah, so you're in like the silent know, film like... era in the teens, right? Yeah, silent film era. Yeah, and um, yeah, I just was like, I was very very impressed with Goth's performance here. This is very tough um, because it was so campy, um, and 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 because she had to to also. Um, you know carry sort of like you know the emotional center of it because it, it was emotional too I mean this, she she was a just a, a girl who you know yeah she's a fucking lunatic but she also just you know had dreams and wanted to be in love and her husband was gone and um, yeah it, it I didn't see it, it's the the precursor to x i didn't see x so i you know i, I yeah. can't speak to that but. so
0: so i did see x which is why i didn't see pearl because i had a really really bad time with with x uh. um i mean you i mean what you i mean what you have and others have said about pearl makes me makes me interested to see it for goth i mean i like goth very much i saw her in um should
1: see it, Claire yeah. should
0: high life and um one of my favorite underrated horror films of recent years Gore verbinski's a cure for wellness um mm. she's a good like. I guess, like, Scream Queen is the easy moniker, but, I mean, like, she's made, like, very interesting horror films, you know, and not playing, like, traditional sort of, like, Scream Queen roles. I agree, she's extremely talented, and some of the stuff, like, the the little clips and stuff (laughs) that I've seen from this movie. I'm sure you've seen the clips
1: from, like, The the the, Smile at the end, the monologue. Yeah, she has a great monologue at the end, and she, she wrote it um so she's a very talented woman and yeah and another young actress that i'm adding to like my circle of young actresses that i pray for every night for good roles in, in good movies
0: <laughs> the the pearl prayer circle yeah yeah absolutely yeah, yeah pearl did nothing wrong Speaking of uh, talented women who do nothing wrong, um, we want to talk about. Uh, <laughs> to my mind, I think um, the movie of the year is uh, is Tar is is Todd Field's yes. film Tar, and I say that not necessarily as uh, as a, as a quality judgment. And this is I'm going to clear out and let Gabby Cook a little bit on on this one. Um, but you know, Tar is the movie I feel like in a in a time where. In a very tricky time, as we've said, a very challenging time for, you know, Prestige Fair, whatever you want to call it, for art films, for like, you know, quote unquote movies for adults. Um, this is the movie I think that has most kind of like captured imaginations. One of the best bits of um, Criticism about the movie for me was the Film Comment podcast episode um, that you can go listen to. It's called Tar Wars, um, where uh, critic Jessica Kang on that episode was tasked with defending the movie against what was essentially an ambush—three <laughs> critics on one. Um, you know, and either... she
1: won, in it, my opinion. It was three. It
0: was three detractors, <laughs> three three tar haters, three tar skeptics versus Jessica defending the movie, and she handily won that fight. She uh, she absolutely mm-hmm. freaked it. I mean, just uh, uh, Jessica's great. <laughs> Jessica's a great critic, you know, just a total sidebar here, but relating back to Cronenberg, I think one of the pieces of film criticism I've shared with more people than any other in recent years is uh, Jessica Kang's essay um, for Criterion about Cronenberg's movie Crash. Um, fantastic mm-hmm. essay. Um, but but she describes Lydia Tarr in that episode as a female Daniel Plainview. And I thought that you know, whether you think that's completely apt or not, I think you have to hand it to the movie because there truly hasn't been an original fictional screen character like this that has so obsessed people like Lydia right. Tar has the partisans of this movie and even people like me who are more skeptical about the movie I love all the stupid Lydia Tarr jokes and everything uh, it, there has not been a character like this in years I mean, she's may, real I mean she is real you know Lydia Tar is real maybe <laughs> may uncut gems and Howie's maybe you could look back to that but when I yeah. so I, when, I, when I wrote about the movie on Letterboxd I mean I, I am a little bit of a skeptic of this movie I'm not a hater I want to clarify, clarify that But I, I think Todd Field is a brilliant guy he's probably a genius but his genius is not necessarily for filmmaking. I mean, uh, the movie is very, very smartly written and constructed and designed. But in a way that I think purposely and I think too coyly kind of corners its arguments about the situation. The film is about Cape mm-hmm. Blanchett as this fictional, maybe not fictional, uh, conductor Lydia Tarr, who has this sort of spectacular fall from her perch of prestige and power within the music world. You know, the the ambiguity that's built into the movie, I find not to be situational, but evasive. There are too many places where the movie cuts away, not because something is irrelevant to the plot or to Lydia's experience, but because Field would rather allow us to choose our own facts. And I just, I respond badly to being managed or feeling like I'm being managed that way as a viewer. So I am ultimately colder than, than you are, Gabby, on the movie, even though, even though I, I grant it has a lot to recommend it, but but you can tell me, tell me why I'm wrong.
1: Well, I don't know if you're you're wrong per se. I, um, I understand your critiques of the movie and other people's critiques, but I I, I think people are missing a lot, and it might be the fact that I watched have watched the movie several times. Um,
0: <laughs> Which is so great. I love that. I mean, I haven't like yeah. rewatched any of the movies that we're talking about, but you're just like sitting there watching Tar like on a loop, like like a, a Leonardo DiCaprio Literally. in The Aviator. You've just got a private theater playing Tar all day long
1: well speaking of the aviator that's the movie that i fell in love with kate blanchett and i I saw that movie in theaters and i just remember being being blown away by her performance as katherine hepburn she she won an oscar for that and then um a couple years later she was in notes on a scandal which is uh you know just one of my favorite movies of all time um so i'm a big blanchett fan even though uh i don't love her enough to watch lord of the rings movie sorry um (laughs) (laughs) So <laughs> I'm like, I will follow you anywhere, Kate Blanchett, but not there. That much um, longer I, than Tar. I, I even watched Blue Jasmine, which she won an Oscar for, which is, you know, silly. That was a, not a very good movie. She, if anything, she should be winning the Oscar for this, but whatever. Um, yeah, I don't think Tar is all that vague. I think, again, I, I've watched it a lot, so I've picked up on a lot of details. I think we are given... I mean, this, this is a critique I hear a lot, but we're people really want to conclusively say whether or not Lydia Tarr is a monster. And um, I am here to say that Lydia Tarr is not a monster. I'm not even sure that you can call her a predator. Um, is she a good person? I don't know. Has she exploited her power? Absolutely. Um, has she done bad things? Yes. Uh, should she be held accountable for the bad things that she's done? And the way she has exploited her power, yes. But I think people desperately just wanted some impetus to be able to call her a monster. I think the Juilliard scene really um, upset people. I think uh, it was kind of clumsily written, that scene. The thing that bothered me most about that, that scene was um, I think a student at Juilliard, no matter how intimidated he might be by somebody as... Esteemed and high status as Lydia Tar would have had uh, stronger comebacks to her. Yeah, um, he yeah. he's very timid. He's kind of like shaking his leg the whole time. It doesn't it doesn't really seem natural. Um, she does kind of engage him, and she brings him up to the piano, and she's talking to him, and she's almost doing like a little stand up um, in in this class that she's teaching at Juilliard. She's kind of funny and cheeky with it. Um, and I just think that he would have had a better response than, uh, well, I don't really do white male sis, you know, like a student at Juilliard would have had more to say about that. And so I think, um, I think maybe that agitated people because it, 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 uh, I know for a lot of people who saw the movie in theaters, people were cheering for Lydia during that scene. Um, you know, they thought it was great, great when she told him to go to that you know he has no imagination he's a robot and um, he sold you know, his he's he sold
0: his soul for for social media I think uh, yeah I mean I go back the art and... the, ar-
1: the architect of your soul is social media <laughs> thank
0: you yes and... <laughs> I, I go back and forth on whether I think this scene is uh, is is as big a problem as some others I because I I, I I see that critique and I think it's a very good one um, but I mean like like so many of the scenes in the movie the point is of course really not about the other people in the scene it's about her performance. You know, does that really justify making the other... Making this character such a ridiculous straw person for her to tear apart... Uh, maybe not but there's also like a thread of the movie about how everybody just in her orbit turns into kind of like a, a stumbling stan you know like people just you know are right. kind of reduced to you know uh to to worship around her they they can't be articulate uh in her presence right. she has that kind of reality distortion field and I, I do think it's an incredibly compellingly blocked and acted scene i mean that's the that's the oscar clip of course
1: yeah i know i know one of your critiques when we talked about this before was that the the early scenes in the movie are so long and so expository and drawn out. And then there's a certain point where it just becomes kind of like, you're not given anything and uh, we don't know what's, you know, things are cut and um, it gets kind of campy and it feels kind of like a different movie. But um, yeah, to go back to what you said to just, you know, people kind of, uh, you know, turning into puddles in her presence and, 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 sort of the central emotional thrust of the movie and, and this former student that she had who, um, you know, eventually takes her life and it's implied that, you know, Lydia, um, you know, had something to do with that by, by blackballing her. Um, but, you know, at, at first it seems like, you know, this woman might have been, you know, just a, an absolute terrible victim at the hands of Lydia Tarr. But um, I think the closer you look at it, um, especially some details I picked up on re-watching the movie. This was a romance that Lydia Tar had with an underling, which, again, is not a good thing. Um, and, you know, she should have more discretion. But I think, I, I don't think Lydia is a monster. I think she is kind of a horny, petty old lady. Um, I think she ha- develops schoolgirl crushes. I think the way that she interacts with the, the Russian cellist shows that she... Um, you know, kind of becomes coy when she develops a, a crush on a girl. Um, you know, we're, we're ignoring the fact that she's, you know, cheating on her wife or whatever, but, you know, any man in this situation would be doing the same thing. Um, you know, it's it's not great, but again, it's it's not something that makes you a monster per se. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think she, you know, when she gets carried away with these crushes and she had this, this you know, romance with Krista, and we know that, that Krista is still... In the beginning of the movie, before, you know, she meets her her fate, um, she is still lurking around Lydia. She is um, definitely now that I've watched the movie several times, the one that is sending the the phantom text messages. Um, the movie opens with Lydia on a on a private jet, and somebody, you know, she's asleep, and somebody is texting about her. And the final text that that person receives is, "So you still love her?" Um, it's not Francesca um francesca and lydia don't have a romantic relationship um and then in the audience at the gopnik interview which <laughs> the people on that podcast went so hard on him like come on man you know yeah of course he's dorky and pretentious but like what do you expect they they were like v- like villainizing him oh i mean like nobody the... <laughs>
0: hates the media gargoyles more than you know other writers in, in, in similar spheres right right
1: made them so uncomfortable yeah but i i mean it was he was charming i thought um you know <laughs> this is and... this is
0: a great this is a great way to cap up this podcast we like adam gopnik we like lydia tar um kendall roy did nothing wrong there's a great ideological through line on this podcast um you did have some really interesting notes here about you know the the through lines between tar and succession that i think we've we've talked about before where you know Lydia has this kind of, like, Logan-esque, like, class resentment where she, like, really dislikes yeah, the, uh, the old so money folks of the world that she uh, sort of inhabits. That's
1: that that's something that sort of became more clear to me, too, as I as I watched the movie. Um, I just want to mention real quick that Krista is in the room uh, at the Gopnik interview. She's also outside the hotel. And this is before the surrealism and ghost stuff starts happening. This is real. Um, we know Krista has red hair later on. There's a, an article about her death and... Um, you see the red hair, uh, it's, you know, very, very striking. And then it's, you know, so it, she is, she is there kind of lurking, following, uh, Lydia around. And, and I think this is just, a, a you know, a very, very, you know, uh, intense r- romantic relationship gone wrong. Um, anyway, but yeah, the, the class resentment elements are, 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 pretty interesting. Um, Krista, we can infer, you know, is upper middle class. There's a scene early on they are dropping hints or you know that that something happened with a student um and uh you know that that was in the the female the all female program that Lydia has for um for women uh conductors and that it didn't work out with one placement and she's like well you know she was troubled and and uh, Elliot Kaplan, the guy that she's talking to, says, you know, yeah, and I have to hear about it at, from her dad at every Citibank interview um, in the mm. article later on where she's, where she, they talk about her death. They mention that she's a Westchester native. So we know Krista was, was upper middle class. Um, we also know that Olga is a little bit of a, not to use the term Nepo baby, but um, when she has the mm. lunch with Olga the cellist, um, Lydia mentions somebody in the industry and Olga's like, yeah, it's my uncle. And I think Lydia's a little taken aback. I think uh, she expected Olga to be, you know, some sort of, uh, you know, in tatters Russian girl, and um, she's not. And um, yeah, so I think she has, you know, some sort of Logan Roy esque resentment to the born privileged. Um, even though I do think the way that they return to her childhood and we learn about the fact that she was, um, you know, working class or poor, or whatever that she wherever borough she is in that final scene Staten Island Queens um it wasn't written so well and it kind of felt corny and like a different movie um but it does offer us more information again we get a lot of information about Lydia Tarr throughout this movie I know people think that we don't um and so yeah I think you know it might have made more it might have felt more true for Lydia to have come from privilege given you know where she landed um but uh, I, I do think that there is, um, you know, something there perhaps in her pettiness uh, in the way that she is, uh, you know, doling out favoritism and then revoking it um, that 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 might be class laden um,
0: yeah I mean yeah I mean we find out in that scene where she returns to her childhood home which is you know very sort of like you know working class that uh, she's not Lydia Tarr but she's Linda Tarr with two R's yeah. um, you know which is a very sort of like uh, of course much has been made of Todd Fields connection to Stanley Kubrick he had a, a role in uh, in Eyes Wide Shut um, right. and you know this this sort of uh, makes you realize in retrospect that this is sort of like Barry Lyndon that she's actually this climber you know they've been mm-hmm. they've dropped hints to this throughout the movie and then they just go ahead and spell it out for you at the end and i mean to to kind of push back on like you know you're laying out the ways in which like we do find out quite a bit about lydia and a lot of this stuff is laid out for us but the way in which it's laid out, especially the way that that information is delivered, kind of there at the end, it it does feel to me kind of like an exhibit for the defense. It does feel to me kind of like you know sure. let's yeah. let's let's explain a little bit about what bad behavior we might be imagining by saying like well she came from this rough background she had to scrabble really hard to get where she is right etc cetera, etc cetera. which is again something that I just I find a little bit gross I I, I just dislike that as as a tendency yeah to no behalf.
1: I I agree and and I completely. Uh, you know won't die on the hill of that being like uh, something that was essential to the movie if anything it felt a little weird like you know this doesn't this doesn't are you trying to justify her behavior also it was just it just kind of was like thrown at us in a kind of a clumsy way whereas like Logan Roy's childhood is kind of drawn out very slowly and um, again you know we're talking about a movie and a TV show but <laughs> it was it was a little clumsy yeah
0: so Todd, Field, but, Todd Field have you seen Succession I think you might like it um, the, the other show I'm thinking about as we talk about this, we talk, I'm, I'm using words like exhibit for the defense, i i been thinking about a TV show we forgot to mention, I'm thinking about uh, Saul Goodman uh, defending Lydia Tarr on the stand. Like, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> my, my client Lydia Tarr. The, only thing, she's, well, the also, only thing she's guilty of is loving too much.
1: Also something, yeah, also something that, that uh, you know, another through line Logan Roy, Lydia Tar uh, is, you know, Lydia's relationship with her daughter, which is something that critics, you know, have, have not really talked about. Um, and it's a more tender relationship than I would have expected. Again, like she might be shaping Petra in her own image by, you know, uh, teaching her all of this stuff about classical music and conducting and she's, uh, uh laying out her stuffed animals in such a way that looks like an orchestra. Um, but you know, Lydia loves her daughter and even Sharon calls it, Sharon, her wife calls it the only non-transactional relationship in her life while they're fighting, which, which seems like a dig, but it's actually a pretty kind thing to say when you're fighting with your wife, who's cheating on you and who you just found out, um, you know, is in a whole bunch of trouble for, up uh, Potential sexual impropriety, but, um, yeah. Again, Brendan, you brought it up. Is she simply shaping her daughter in her own image, like Logan does with his? Is it, is that real love? Uh, I don't know.
0: Yeah, there's that. There's a great shot in one of those scenes with her daughter Petra. My favorite shot in the entire movie, um, is a scene where Lydia sees that Petra has arranged her stuffed animals as an, as as an orchestra pit around a conductor, uh, where all of her animals are all like are, are arranged in this position of almost supplication or worship to the conductor figure and you realize that yeah she's turning her daughter not just into herself but into another one of her simps and her stands um which i think yeah. is great and another thing that comes back uh i think to haunt lydia in the um the final passage of the movie that scene where she goes into a into a massage parlor and sees uh women arrayed before her i think is very i think is very much meant to echo that shot of the stuffed animals. It
1: is. Well, yeah, and and the shot of the orchestra. Yes. Um. You know who she, who you know who she is is uh you know reigning over temporarily, but yeah, I mean I think Lydia Tarr. I don't think she's a perfect woman. I am not gonna say that she shouldn't <laughs> be held accountable, but she is a haunted woman. I think um, some people found some of like the ghost stuff um kind of schlocky and some people are these
0: people in the room with us gabby you can just say me Uh, i I think i said that i didn't like these scenes but yes
1: but I liked it because I think that that stuff is there from the beginning. Lydia is clearly anxious from the beginning. She's, uh, you know, shoveling pills into her mouth. Her wife, her wife's pills, as a matter of fact, that she steals. Because there's a scene then later when her wife is having a fucking panic attack and she doesn't have her beta blockers. And Lydia goes into the bathroom and pretends that she found a pill in the right. sink. But really, she had been hoarding the pills. Uh, she's a very anxious woman. She's haunted. She suffers from... These terrible nightmares and auditory hallucinations where she's running and she hears women screaming. So, you know, I, I, it's just hard for me when people call this like a Me Too movie to think like this is not a female Harvey Weinstein. She didn't go up to her hotel room and order people to, to send up women to do sexual favors for her and say, you know, if you don't do this uh, you won't get X, Y, and Z. I mean, she's, she's not a monster like that. Like, I, I just don't buy it. I think she, she feels the guilt. Again, it's, it's, a lot of it is sublimated and it doesn't, uh, you know, much of it doesn't come out until later after the, you know, the big news about Krista. Um, and then it, it really starts to come out. Even the, uh, like situation with the neighbor, which I know you hated. Um, but that, that also was part of the ghost story. Um, that was that was scary. And the fact that like she, you know, when she goes into that apartment and that woman she has to carry that woman's like decrepit body, like there are a lot of people way less statist and way less egomaniacal than Lydia Tarr who would have run out of that room and, and had nothing to do with it, but she does help that woman um yeah and that's interesting interesting
0: succession connection there i mean like when you talk about that i think about the scene we talked about in retired janitors with with tom helping logan right you know just like from that that class background you know having some exposure to actual human frailty
1: right and then when the 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 not the the able-bodied child of the woman who died in the apartment comes and lydia's you know they're, they're like well can you be tell us when when you're not making music so that we can show the apartment and not scare people off. And she laughs in their face. And then she has that, you know, amazing song on her accordion apartment for sale. And she's like, you're all going to hell, you pieces of shit. You sent your disabled sister to jail. You're all going to hell. Um, Crazy that, that, that I don't think uh, TARS music is eligible for the, for Oscars for some reason. Um, (laughs) I, I, I don't remember why, but, but that song would have should have been best original song. Um, again anyway I, I I like the ghost stuff I think it's threaded throughout I think her anxiety and her guilt are, are are manifest throughout even before the Gopnik scene like I don't know everyone thinks uh Lydia definitely has created this like highly stratified world for herself and uh is you know super privileged and. Um, yeah. Again, maybe a so... uh,
0: maybe a more relatable experience. I mean, to kind of to kind of put a bow on that. I mean, the you know, to the ex- again, I, I really like the you know, the way that you find into the movie through, you know, rewatching it as, as you always do with Succession and you've done with this, you know, you, you, you rewatch and you pick up on things that I didn't pick up on. And I like the way that you found into, you know, the relationship with Krista and, you know, like trying to piece through, you know, who those texts are from, because that was an element of the movie that just went totally over my head when I first saw it. I was really not clear what was going on yeah. there at all and i think you know that
1: me neither that, not the first time it's not it's not apparent yeah but it was definitely krista yeah
0: but i think a movie that you know can inspire and reward that kind of obsessive attention you know it doesn't necessarily mean that it's good or that it's great but it, it you know it says something it says that it you know that there is value there and that there is construction and intelligence in this movie um that i don't want to um to you know, uh, to know and, sell and we, or we... underrate
1: we don't we don't often get portrayals of female genius like this. I mean, almost never. You know, that's something they brought up yeah. on that podcast. Yeah, and I mean, um, and so it is compelling.
0: And the the reality that the movie describes that is you know relatable or something that people can find their way into is you know that Lydia eventually that she you talk about her as you know not being a monster because she's doing you know maybe what you'd expect people to do in in kind of this situation she is a, she benefits from this enormously sort of like old world structure of prestige and influence that she expects to operate in a certain way. And then she finds that, it, you know, it's turned on her kind of like a, a weapon, like a laser sight or something um, that whole, that entire structure is actually welded to this international apparatus of celebrity and prestige mm-hmm. that is as capable of destroying somebody as it is uplifting them. And I think that's something that, you know, it's a, it's a reality that I think has a lot of resonance. Um, and so I, yeah, I, and
1: I, I know we debated a little bit about the ending really quick, just that, For me, it's an indication that she is devoted to her craft and that she's going to continue... you know regardless of the circumstances i think any men in her situation would have just like retreated to a Paris apartment and hid out for a while until the storm passed uh i know you saw it maybe as perhaps just more indication of her careerism but you know well i think it's i think it's
0: again like everything else in the movie it is very structurally cagey and deliberately ambiguous you know it's it's not clearly one or the other she is doing something you know that she might consider beneath her in order to you know continue pursuing her art but she's also doing something that her PR, her crisis PR firm has has set her to do. We're talking a little bit about the, around the uh, the very wacky and strange punchline of this movie because it's a moment that shouldn't be spoiled if you haven't uh, seen it. Um, but it's
1: very funny, yes. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> it's a Funny movie. Lydia's funny. I mean, like she's funny. She, she's they're, they're, she's a they're,
0: genius they're, and important. Most of all, she's she's real. She's a real person.
1: She's real. She's absolutely real. Yeah. Um. And I. I... <laughs> I try to imagine her like encounters with the Roy sometimes because you know that they've met. I I don't know. Oh, yeah.
0: Well, that's the that's the other (laughs) that's the other track is that if she doesn't if she doesn't, you know, try to climb her way back to the top of the music world, she just, you know, cashes out and goes into right wing media. Um, You know, I was, I was, I was, I was canceled by the woke mob, Lydia Tarr on Joe Rogan. I mean, all the jokes write themselves and I've written plenty of them. They're very funny. Um, We do need to, we do need to kind of wrap this up. Um, I do. I know we have some notes here on some other movies that are going to be up for Oscars. I don't have a ton to say about everything everywhere all at once. Banshees of Innesharon or the Fablemans, all of which will probably be be nominated for Oscars, which all of which did pretty much nothing for me. Um, Elvis also, this was a big hit, but you know, I'm out on Boz Lerman. Can't do it. Sorry. Guys, um so I, I didn't see it.
1: Yeah, I mean everything everywhere for me isn't quite my cup of tea. Michelle Yeoh, I think, is great, and she's gonna—it's you know—it's gonna be between her and Kate for the Oscar. I I won't be devastated you know—I really obviously am rooting hard for Lydia, but I won't be devastated if uh you know Michelle takes it. She's a beautiful actress, and she you know she's never won one. Banshees, you know, it was all right. I love Colin Farrell. I love the arc of his career. By all reports that I've heard, he's a great guy. Um, he's worked his ass off and you know hopefully he gets that Oscar although I have not seen The Whale and uh, Brendan Fraser's career arc has also been quite interesting. Uh, Fablements for me you know I was surprised Steven Spielberg had all this Freudian stuff in his childhood I would have imagined it to be much more wholesome. Um, <laughs> but yeah I, I still am a little bit bitter because I just I think Armageddon time was you know, slightly more emotionally resonant for me and it kind of got eclipsed by by spielberg's yeah uh, little visual memoir um yeah deserve deserved better yeah. than it
0: got as of yeah as of this recording we haven't seen the whale or women talking um babylon yes. or avatar 2 um I'm gonna, i might try to see babylon and avatar this weekend but you know yeah
1: but, really trying to get to women talking uh claire Foy, rooney and of course you know jesse buckley my favorite uh yeah, but we'll see we'll
0: see jesse jesse buckley prayer circle for sure um <laughs> always <laughs> so so yeah i mean hopefully the next time you hear from us um it'll be our armageddon time episode dropping sometime. Um, we hope, well, I won't, I won't commit to a time frame, but hopefully hopefully, sometime soon. Um, as always, if you're enjoying the show, the best way you can support us is by leaving us a five-star rating and a review on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. I didn't know you could rate podcasts on Spotify, but apparently we do have a rating on there oh. um, according to our Spotify Wrapped for podcasters. Um, the okay. second best way to support us is by throwing a few bucks our way via the Square link in the show description. RoyCast is a passion project. We incur minor ongoing fees relating to produ- producing and hosting the show, which these donations help us to defray. We have no intention of paywalling our episodes. The content will always be free. This is just there for those who wish to give some additional support. Um, But until next time, uh, it's been great talking. Everybody take care of yourselves. Have a great 2023.
2: Bye-bye. Ah, Lydia. She was the most glorious creature under the sun. Thais Dubai, Gabo. Rolled into one Uh. Lydia, oh Lydia, say have you met Lydia? Lydia the tattooed lady She has eyes that folks adore so And a torso even more so Lydia, oh Lydia, that encyclopedia Oh Lydia the queen of tattoos on her back is the Battle of Waterloo. Beside it, the wreck of the Hesperus too. And proudly above waves the red, white, and blue. You can learn a lot from Lydia. When a robe is unfurled, she will show you the world. If you step up and tell for a dime you can see Kankakee or Paris or Washington crossing the Delaware. <laughs> Our muscles start relaxing. Up the hill comes Andrew Jackson, oh, Lydia, Lydia, oh, Lydia, oh Lydia, that, that encyclopedia. encyclopedia, oh Lydia, oh, Lydia the queen the of them all. all. For two bitches she will do a mazurka in jazz, with a view of Niagara that nobody has. And on a clear day you can see Alcatraz. You can learn a lot from Lydia. La, 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 la. along and see Buffalo Bill with his lasso. Just a little classic by Mendel Picasso. Here is Captain Spaulding exploring the Amazon. Here's Godiva but with her pajamas on. Here is Grover Whalen unveiling the Trilon. Over on the west coast we have Treasure Island. Is Najinsky a-doing the rumba? Is her social security number?